Hopefully you already know that Christians live in a hostile world. In the West you may not notice it so much, but if you read articles on the internet, maybe Open Doors would be a suggestion to you. Another place I use is Voice of the Martyrs. And I notice in the the June 2019 edition of uh, Voice of the Martyrs, it was com- commenting on a recent attack in uh, Sri Lanka. You'll see a picture on the screen here. Because I read about uh, on Easter Sunday that I- Islamic terrorists targeted Christians in Sri Lanka. It said that within 20 minutes, 253 people were killed and more than 500 wounded in a coordinated suicide bomber attack. Actually, more than one. And this isn't just happening in Sri Lanka. It, on Easter 2012, is the Islamic group Boko Haram exploded a car bomb near a church in Nigeria, killing 41 people. On Easter 2016, 75 people died. More than 300 were injured when bombs exploded in Pakistan, where Christians were celebrating together, celebrating the the work of Christ, of all things. Here they are murdering these dear people. And then in 2017 in Egypt, two bombs were planted in churches by Islamic terrorists, killing more than 40 Christians and injuring 147 Christians on Palm Sunday. By the way, that uh, Sri Lanka picture here, That's just one of the church buildings where a bomb went off. The death toll in uh, Sri Lanka attacks there would have been even higher and much worse if it wasn't for the swift action of a man named Ramesh. Did you hear about Ramesh? Interesting story. Uh, Ramesh is a Christian man, one of those churches there. He confronted a suicide bomber and did not let him into the building. This stranger had it said he was coming to make a video of the church. And so Ramesh uh, refused him, didn't allow him into the building, and escorted him away from his fellow Christians, took him outside where the terrorist proceeded to blow himself up, including Ramesh and more than 20 other people with him. Sad story, but... Uh, I'm glad it wasn't inside the church building because there were 300 people in that church building. And these events are terrible, aren't they? They're terrible. And a lot of times, unless you go to certain sources like Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors, for example, we don't often hear about these things in the West. Oh, we hear about it, you know, weeks and sometimes even months when 50 people are killed in a mass attack in New Zealand, right? But if that happens, you know, when we hear about Christians, even far worse, we don't tend to hear about these things. Christians are often the prime targets for anti-Christian hatred, uh, particularly when they're meeting in these religious meetings, like an Easter celebration, for example. Much of the persecution and the violence occurs in places where the Western media typically overlooks these things, places like Sri Lanka. So clearly, Christians live in a hostile world. Not just in the East, but the West is... Well, fortunately, in New Zealand, I don't 
I, I don't recall us ever having a mass killing of Christians here. Thank God for that. But nevertheless, we still live in a hostile world, right? You've probably experienced some, some hostile aggression from someone. Certainly, religious freedom is under attack in the West and, and even in our part of the world here. Uh, if you read the news, it's all over the news. For example, uh, you, you hear of people losing their jobs for their Christian beliefs, right? Right. Just look at what's happening in Australia, for example, where Israel Folau has lost his job as a rugby player in the Australian Rugby Union uh, just for making biblical statements. You might question the wisdom of using social media to do that, but nevertheless, he made biblical statements and has lost his job. So what do we do as Christians? You might lose your job. You may not receive a promotion a promotion just because you're a Christian. Or you might, even if you do keep your job, you might experience all this ridicule and slandering and gossip from your workmates or family or whatever, your neighbors, right? Because you're a Christian. This is going on. We, we need to know that. We need to be prepared and know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, the Bible is where we can turn for guidance. God's Word, He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So let's turn to here to Romans chapter 12. Read, what does God have to say for those of us Christians living in this hostile world? This is very applicable for us today. So look what it says, Romans 12, verse 14. The Bible says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the proposition from our text here, this, this particular paragraph today, is simply this, my friends, that God wants you to love the world. Even a hostile world, even a world that despises God and His Word and is in rebellion against Him, even that kind of world, God is telling you to love them. Uh, love has been a, uh, a huge, a huge theme in this passage, even back in, cha- uh, sorry, verse 9. You say, well, where's this love part coming from? Verse 9 just says, "Love, let love be genuine. <laughs> Verse 10, love one another. <laughs> right? You, you read in this, the whole context, 
Love is a huge theme, in fact, throughout the Bible. We are to love the world. Fortunately, we have some principles here for loving a hostile world that, that we need to know them and put them into practice. So let's look at these. By the way, I'll just state, uh, first of all, there's a lot of stuff here. I encourage you to, to dig even deeper. But as we go through a, a lot of these uh, phrases here, I just want to point out many of them. In fact, most of them are a present active imperative verb in the Greek language. And so whenever you see, when you see that, not all of them, but when you see something that's in the present, means you continually do this through your life. It's not a one-time action. You've you got to keep doing this. Keep doing this. It's something you have to do. It's, it's an, an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. So you, you'll see this, this force coming through the text here as we look at all these. But the first principle that God gives to us as we're striving to love a hostile world is bless these people who persecute us. They're to be blessed. <laughs> wow, that's a difficult admonition. And one that is totally contrary to our nature, is it not? Is that the most natural thing for you when someone attacks you? May even kill a member of your family? Would, is that the first reaction? Bless them. <laughs> so we not only must resist hating this person and retaliating against people who harm us, but we are commanded here by God to take this additional step of going beyond that and blessing them. Well, what does that look like? <laughs> you say, I'm glad you asked that question. Well, how about we turn to Jesus here? Look at Jesus' words. Jesus is really helpful here in another companion passage. Look what he says here in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, agape, that's the English word love. In Greek, it's agape. Agape your enemies. That's, that's, that's God's selfless love here. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So you, you can even just look at those two verses there and say, well, what, is, what does it mean, bless those who persecute you? Well, one of the things you could start with is Pray for those who mistreat you. And that's what Jesus does. You say, well, how does genuine love respond to mistreatment? Was Jesus mistreated? Well, here's what Jesus says. Look at Jesus' own words. He says here in verse 29, he says, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. That's helpful. So, for example, let's just get practical. Let's say, let's say an unbeliever hates you, hates your God, and takes your job. How do you respond? Well, Jesus is saying, don't demand it back. Don't demand it back. You, you leave that in God's hands, right? It's like you, you take the blow and then just expect some more. 
But what about our attitude? See, Jesus doesn't just care what you do. He cares about your attitude behind what you do. And in verse 32, he starts getting into our attitude. What's going on inside us? He says, there in verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. (laughs) Wow. So, to truly bless those who persecute us, then, is to treat them as if they're your friend. Wow. Do you find that hard? Because I... I look at Jesus' words there, and and I know they're true, and I know they're from Jesus, and I have to believe what Jesus says, but that is just not natural within me. I find that really, really hard. You probably do too. So you're you're going to have to pray for God to exercise His grace in you to even want to do this or even attempt to do this, right? How is this possible? Well, Jesus is our supreme example of blessing one's persecutors. And I think of when Jesus was hanging on the cross in shame, he exhibited blessing those who were persecuting him, right? In fact, he prays for them, doesn't he? For example, in Luke 23, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What a great example. Another good example is Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen is being stoned for preaching the gospel. He's told the truth about Jesus, and of course the Jews hate him for that. And so here's Stephen. He's been hit by these boulders. He's dying. He's laying at the bottom of a pile of boulders. And as he's dying, he says here, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So he's blessing his persecutors by praying for them. That's a good example. Several good examples. You say, well, what's the point here, Pastor Scott? The point is that God wants you to love a hostile world by blessing them. That's the very first point that the Bible's making. So you, you, you need to love a hostile world by blessing them. But the next phrase goes another step as well. Not only do you bless, in verse 14, but do not curse them. See, it's not just bless, but we are to never curse our persecutors. So Paul makes certain here to explain to us that true blessing of those who persecute us is something that's comprehensive and it's permanent. But comprehensive, it's all-encompassing, right? It's a whole thing. It's, and it's not just a temporary thing. It's something that is to be permanent. Not only are we to bless our persecutors, but we should never curse them. Well, because of the religious freedom that we tend to enjoy, enjoy at least in our modern Western society, we, we rarely encounter the kind of persecution that our that our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing in the eastern part of the world. And so our temptation to curse people is more likely to be a reaction to some hostility 
that happens to us, and it's a kind of hostility that's a non-life-threatening thing. You've probably had it, and if you hadn't, if you haven't, then maybe it's because you're not living a godly life, by the way. Because Paul tells Timothy, all who live this godly life in Christ Jesus will per- suffer persecution. And so if you're not, you have to ask yourself, well, am I godly? And if you're godly, you're going to suffer persecution. Your life may not be threatened, but the hostile world is going to come against you. And so our temptation in the midst of that is to curse. Maybe not out loud, maybe not verbally, but in your mind, in your heart, right? You're, you're like, you know, if, if your thoughts could come out verbally, it, it'd probably embarrass us if other people heard our thoughts, right? Because we're, you know, we're grumbling and complaining inside, you know, that person, you know, and you're saying all kinds of nasty things about them, right? Why'd they do that to me? Why? We get frustrated. So we have to guard our hearts. We can be tempted even to curse within our own selves. Of course, we're not to do that. We're to love this hostile world by not cursing them. And number three, the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And again, this is one of those continuous things that God wants us to do. It's not a one-off, a one-time thing. The Holy Spirit here, by the way, basically talking about empathizing with your persecutors. You say, well, what is empathy? Empathy is this amazing ability to identify closely with someone else. It's like getting into their shoes, so to speak. It's uh, to make his case your own. You're, You're allowing what's happened to to somebody else to affect you as well. You want to try to get yourself in their shoes where you can feel what's... Try to feel what's going on with them. Let's face it, friends. This is difficult. It's not easy, is it? And so when another person's blessing and their happiness is at our expense, what's your natural reaction? (laughs) Right? For example, when, when your workmate gets gets the raise and the promotion and you 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 know it's because the boss hates christians and hates god right it's ugh, you know what do you do do you walk up to your workmate and say congratulations may god bless you i'm really happy that you got the raise and i didn't <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's hard isn't it uh you know when there's some favored circumstances or some notable accomplishment that uh, from from uh, someone else that, that makes makes you kind of feel empty or dull inside. You, it's really hard to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Yeah, the sin nature doesn't lead us to rejoice, but instead your sin nature is going to tempt you to resent that person and what's happened to them. So how do you react to your non-Christian workmate who who gets the promotion? Instead of you, just because you're a Christian. Ooh. You're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mean it. That's hard, isn't it? But look at the next one. Number four, we're also to weep with those who weep. Wow. <laughs> it is also the Christian way, as it says here, to be sensitive 
to other people's disappointments and their sorrows. Cry with them. Weep with them. And we need, to rem- we need reminding that we should reflect our God's character here. Do you remember in John chapter 11, one of the shortest verses in the Bible in English, we see Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. And he, by the way, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But nevertheless, what does Jesus do? He comes, he comes to, he sees his friends weeping and he weeps with his friends. The Bible just says Jesus wept. He had compassion and sympathy and a tender heart toward these people, and he wept alongside of Mary and Martha. Good example. Weep with those who weep. And number five, or wait, sorry. Let me let me just. This is another interesting verse I wanted to share with you. One of the most profound testimonies to God's own heart on this matter. You can see a tender heart and a sympathy coming from God in. Psalm 56 is interesting. In Psalm 56, David is actually imploring the Lord, put my tears in your bottle. You know that verse? Psalm 56? Yeah, David says, God, put my tears in your bottle. And here's the point, my friends. Did you know that God stores up our tears as a treasure? It's His treasure. He knows. He cares. So if we're to be like Jesus Christ, then we need to enter into the sorrows of others. Let's just get practical again here. When you heard of the 50 people killed in Christchurch in the mass shooting, did you weep? Did you weep with those who weep? Did you come across a Muslim in Hamilton and express your sorrow? Pray for them. Pray for their community. That's just a little practical thing showing, are we really weeping with those who weep? The fifth point the Bible's making here is to live in harmony. Live in harmony, an ongoing action that we have to do. The basic... uh, idea here is this virtue of impartiality. See, something that's in harmony is is not against each other. For example, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you go hear an orchestra playing music. right? You you might have over a hundred different people playing different instruments in an orchestra, possibly, in a big one, right? But if they're all in tune together, following the director, it's a beautiful thing. There's unity. There's, they aren't necessarily all playing the, they're not playing all the same notes, but they can still be in harmony with one another. And it makes for beautiful music. There's no impartiality going on there. Well, there's no partiality with God, the Bible says. And if that's the case with God, shouldn't it be the same with us? Because the Bible says, Romans 2, that there is no partiality with God. Acts chapter 10 says that God is not one to show partiality. And and the idea is there is uh, 
God doesn't take different ethnicities, for example, and treat them differently. It doesn't matter if you're black, yellow, what color, whatever color you are, white, so forth. God doesn't show partiality. He's impartial. It doesn't matter what your standing is. He's impartial. Whether you know, I love that verse in Galatians where God says, "Hey, I, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, if you're a slave or a free man. It doesn't it doesn't matter what you are. You can still be one in Christ. That's the way God is. He is impartial. So we're not to treat different ethnicities in, in different ways, right? We're to be impartial." That's the idea of living in harmony with, even with our own persecutors. But our tendency is, sometimes we can look at someone and, and, and we, uh, we can judge people by how they look. We, we look at their ethnicity, for example, and we say, ooh, I can't trust that person because he might hurt me and my family. But we're, to, we're not to show partiality. We're to live in harmony, even with an unbeliever. And number six, the Bible says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. A haughty there has this idea of you're minding high things. Literally is what it means. Minding high things. This sense that Paul is referring to here is the sense of a self-seeking pride. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that we should avoid associating with people in high positions in life, okay? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, uh, never talk to the mayor or never talk to that billionaire. Uh, you know, just, just avoid all those kind of people, right? No, that's not what it's talking about here. Don't go and talk to MPs or so forth, right? Uh, don't avoid people in high positions. And by the way, I'm not saying either that needy people are more important. That's not what God is saying. But what I am saying is that we have this obligation here to associate with lowly people. Why? Because they are needy. They're needy. Yes, all people are needy, but God's saying associate with lowly people because they're needy. And so within the church, there is no aristocracy. There isn't this hierarchy within the church. There is no elite upper crust, so to speak, within the church. We are all one in Christ. Break down those barriers that tend to rise up within your heart. And number seven, do not be wise in your own sight. Do not be wise in your own sight. Hopefully you are wise, but notice it's talking about wise in your own sight. In other words, in your own perspective, in the way you're seeing things. See, a conceited, self-promoting Christian is a serious contradiction. It's a contradiction. Every believer should be humbly submissive to the will of God. Humbly submissive to the will of God. We must not be wise in our own estimation in any regard, uh, thinking that we are somehow superior to someone else. Because we're not. We're not. In recent years, certain church growth professionals have advocated building churches on this this basis of what they call a homogeneous unit. 
right? The idea is each congregation is composed of members who are, who are like, they gotta be exactly alike, right? We, you know, for example, <laughs> it's crazy what they're coming up with, right? So we want, we want a, a, a church of all white millennials, for example. You know, the people born during this certain period, you know, this is, this is the people we're gonna reach. And all the other people, well, they can go somewhere else, right? Well, you know what? God doesn't want us to all be alike. That, that's not actually healthy anyway. We actually need diversity. Part of this passage here in Romans 12, not this one, but earlier in Romans 12, remember, we're, we're to seek diversity but unity all at the same time. That is possible. We need diversity. We should want diversity. <laughs> A church that's seeking to faithfully serve Christ is, is going to pursue and eagerly accept all genuine believers into its fellowship and consider them all alike, regardless of whatever those human distinctions are. Praise God that we have different ethnicities here. That's a great thing. Praise God there's different generations represented here. That's wonderful. Diversity is a good thing. And so the only required common ground then should be a saving relationship to Jesus Christ and then and then we, we have an unqualified submission to God's Word. So those are just some principles here in this text that show us how are we to think and, and act and live in a hostile world. And as we move on in this text, we, it gets even some more help here. We see, well, how are we to love a hostile world? How are we to love a hostile word? This, this kind of puts you in some shoes in here and helps you know how to walk and, and live in this situation. There's two basic ideas. I, I try to be simple. I, I'm just a common guy, okay? So if I can kind of boil it down into two things, hopefully we can remember these things so we can live out these things in a hostile world. And it basically comes down to these two things from verses 17 to 21. Two points. Trust God and do good. Can you remember that? How do you love a hostile world? Two things. Trust God, do good. We can do that by God's grace. We can do that. So what do you mean by trust God? Well, the first point the Bible makes here is do not repay evil for evil. See, if you, if you do repay evil for evil, you're not trusting God. You're just not. And, and some people look at this passage here in the Bible in verse 17, they say, well, hey, what about that, uh, didn't the Bible say somewhere uh, the, the law of an eye for an eye? Yeah, the Bible does say that, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but you know that, that Old Testament law was read it in its context, right? Don't rip it out of its context. It had to do with civil justice. It has. It's in Exodus 21, in case you're wondering, but So it's talking about civil justice. It's not talking about you going and taking personal revenge on someone. Right? If somebody knocked your tooth out, that doesn't give you the right and go and punch their tooth out. Or if, you know, they hurt your eye, it doesn't give you the right and go punch them in the eye. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, And by the way, not only that, it's uh, the major purpose was to prevent the severity of punishment that would exceed the offense right 
Because you, you know how some people are. In fact, there's a bumper sticker out there that says, uh, it talks about uh, don't go get even, get ahead. Right? So if something bad happens to you, uh, don't get even. In fact, go get ahead. You know, make, you know, whatever the offense against you is, make it worse against them. And so the Bible here in Exodus 21 was trying to prevent that sort of thing happening in a civil justice situation. See, someone guilty of destroying another person's eye couldn't be punished by execution, right? Let the uh, crime and the punishment fit each other. You've heard that? Right? If somebody was to hurt your eye, right, it would be wrong to then go and execute that person if all they did was hurt your eye. The crime doesn't fit the, the punishment there. The penalty couldn't be greater than than uh, forfeiting one's eye. Right? Do you get the point there? So, yes, the Bible does talk about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but don't lose sight of that context. But notice what Paul says about civil authority, even within the context here in Romans. If you go down just a few verses later to chapter 13, that's all about civil authority, is it not? Human government, Romans 13. Look what Paul says in verse 4. He says, for he, that, that government, the state, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So this authority, where is it coming from? It comes from God. God's the one who permits the state, our government, whether it's a city level or a federal level. He's the one who's doing this. They're God's servants. He's put them there. They should be accomplishing His purposes. So the civil government is mandated by God not for personal purposes. That's not what they're there for. This God-ordained authority is supposed to be praising the good, punishing the evil. It's the purpose of government. Now, of course, they've stepped way beyond that. That, that's another sermon. But notice what uh, Paul also says in another passage here, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. Look at this. The Bible says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Seek the good for all men. That's what God says. So don't. The first point being, putting shoes here, and how, to, how do you live this love out to a hostile world? Don't repay evil for evil. Number two, do what is honorable. Continuously do what is honorable. So here, uh, it's a, more talking about an attitude, a right attitude toward our enemies and involves respect of what is right in the sight of all men. And so if we genuinely respect others, by the way, that includes our enemies here, then we're going to have a built-in protection against just angrily repaying evil. We're going to be more likely to do what is right toward that person. If we have the right attitude, if you're prepared to respond with love, you're more likely to respond with love then, aren't you? That word honorable in your Bible there refers to that which is intrinsically good. 
it's talking about something that's proper, something that is honest. So the idea is you do what is intrinsically good, do what is proper, do what is honest toward this hostile world. It's something that's visible. It's something that's obvious. It's something that people can see. Because notice the Bible emphasizes here, you do it in the sight of all men. Did you see that in the text? Verse 17, you, you, you do what's honorable in the sight of all men. It's obvious. It's to be seen. And so Paul's speaking of goodness here that's expressed outwardly. It's not something you're just thinking inside You're not just praying about the person, but you're actually doing something that is good, that's visible and obvious. Number three, how are are you and I to show love in a hostile world? Live peaceably with everyone. This ongoing action here, continuously doing this, living peaceably with everybody. By the way, fulfillment of that characteristic is conditional, of course. It partly depends on the attitudes and the responses of your enemy, right? Because not all enemies are godly, and not all your enemies are going to respond like Christ. Therefore, how can you possibly have peace with everybody all of the time? Well, that's not possible. Because peace is a two-way street. See, You have to be at peace. They have to be at peace. If one of you isn't at peace, then you have a a war going on, right? You're not at peace. If just one of you is not at peace, you don't have peace. So a peaceful relationship can't just be a one-sided thing. That's the point here. Uh, Therefore, what's our responsibility? Well, our responsibility is to make sure that our side of the relationship is right. You can be godly. You can respond right, even when someone else doesn't. So if your inner desire is genuinely to be at peace with all men, even the meanest person in the world, even the most undeserving people in the world, then that's all that God is asking of you. See, You can't make someone show peace. You can't. That's not your responsibility. But you can be... You can live peaceably with people. You don't have to provoke your enemies. Now, short of compromising God's truth, we should be willing to go to great lengths uh, to build peaceful bridges with people. Sometimes we, sometimes, sometimes I, I think I've done this. I know I've done this. I burn my bridges, right? You know what I mean by that? You, you burn your somebody's obnoxious or they uh, say something bad about you and you're like, okay, burn the bridge, done with that relationship, quit trying to live peaceably with that person, right? Oh, we don't have to do that. We need to be willing to go to great lengths to build peaceful bridges, even to those who hate us, even to those who harm us. And We must forsake grudges against these people, not have a heart of bitterness in our life that would hinder that relationship with that person. So live peaceably with everybody. And then number four, notice this is all coming under this idea of, hey, I need to trust God in how I live, live out my love in this hostile world. See, if you're not trusting God, you're not going to do this, are you? But notice number four is you never avenge yourself, 
Instead, what are you to do? You leave it with God. That is trusting God. When you leave it in God's hands, you're trusting God. Are are you not? Because did you notice what verse 19 talks about here? You never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And then it quotes from the Old Testament, from the Psalms there, that where, where God says, hey, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Yeah, it's his job, not yours. And so if a wrong has been done to us, and we never have a right to render punishment for that offense. Never. Never. We are to leave that to the wrath of God, it says. Leave it in God's hands. But the second main point, remember... There's just there's two elements here of how we are to live out this love in a hostile world. Remember what the second one was? Do good. Do good. Present, active, imperative in the Greek. Continuously doing this command. See, merely not returning evil for evil doesn't fulfill our responsibility. It's even harder than that. See, the positive part here is so difficult. We're actually supposed to do good to those who persecute us. That's an interesting phrase. You could might pull that out of context and use it wrong and twist it if you want, but that phrase in your Bible there where you're to heap these burning coals on your persecutor's head, uh, it, it, that doesn't mean you're retaliating. <laughs> that was actually referring to, you need to understand going way, way back to an ancient Egyptian custom where a pan of burning coals on one's head actually represented that person's shame and guilt. And so, if you, if you understand it's referring to shame and guilt, not a personal attack, the point is, when we love our enemy and we're seeking to meet his or her needs, we're, we're shaming that person for their hatred against us. So you're not physically attacking the person, but it's more like it becomes more of an emotional attack in some ways. It's it's a shame. It's a shame. And so the admonition there, uh, do not be overcome by evil, has two meanings and applications that we can think about. Number one, we must not allow the evil done to us to overwhelm us. Do not be overcome by evil. That's probably the natural reaction, though, to be overcome by it. You might be tempted to give up. Do not be overcome by evil. So, don't allow that evil done to you to overwhelm you. I think last week I told you I've been reading from the Pilgrim's Progress, and it's interesting when Christian, Christian is captured by giant despair, and he's thrown into the dungeons there of Doubting Castle, it's interesting that uh, Giant Despair doesn't want to kill Christian. He wants Christian to kill himself. He wants him to be so overcome by the evil that he, he commits suicide. Because Giant Despair thinks if Christian kills himself, then he doesn't get to go to heaven. And so, as far as he's concerned, well, that's the worst thing he can do to himself. He wants him to be overcome by this evil, and so he's threatening him and beating him and leaving him in prison and starving him and so forth. And, and at one point, it, it, the Christian's actually having a conversation about committing suicide. 
he's nearly to the point of being overcome by the evil. But then, finally, he realizes he has the key of promise that had been given to him. And the key of God's promises set him free from Doubting Castle, and he was able to escape from giant despair because of God's promises. Eventually, he wasn't overwhelmed. Uh, but the, the, the second meaning and application here is we must not allow ourselves to be overcome by our own evil responses. See, we can retaliate, we can try to take out vengeance, we can do evil things like that, but our own evil is more destructive to us than can actually be to other people. We can destroy ourselves in the process. And so in each case here, it is the evil itself that has to be overcome. Do you put off? Do you put on? That's the the biblical pattern we see. If you have a, a, a sin or a temptation, you have to put something off, and something has to be put on of like kind. This can only be, if you have evil, then it has to be replaced with good. I think a good example of this, you can see how this was lived out in, in Scripture, is what happened between King Saul and David. You remember uh, King Saul was the first king of Israel. David knew eventually he would be king, but he's not king yet. King Saul hates David, so he's constantly pursuing him and trying to kill him. And we have this story in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I put it on the screen here for you, where the story kind of goes like this. You know, once upon a time in a cave far, far away. Right? That's how all good stories start, right? No, not really. But um, here's what happens. David cuts off a part of the king's robe. But for conscience sake, he, he would not kill King Saul, even though the king was trying to kill David. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Must have been hard. <laughs> must, have been, must have been tempting. Ooh, now's my chance. God's given Saul into my hands. Now's my chance to be king, right? You know, these kind of temptations might be going through his mind. But look what 1 Samuel 24 says, starting in verse 8. Afterward, that's after Saul's left the cave, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, that's David speaking, I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
So what's David doing? He's not being overcome by the evil. He's overcoming the evil with good. He's trusting God and he's doing good to this one who's been persecuting him. And so what's the result? Well, the Bible says the result is, uh, in verse 20, you're heaping these burning coals of shame on the persecutor's head. And so Saul's feeling this shame because David's not overcome by the, the evil. He's overcoming it with good. I want you to notice the effect even here in the narrative. Look at verse 16. 1 Samuel 24, 16 says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me, notice, not evil, good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. My friends, that's what you do. That's how you show love to a hostile world. You trust God and you do good. Keep trusting God. Keep doing good. You leave everything in God's hands, and God's going to look after you. So I ask you, my friends, are we loving the world? Are you loving a hostile world that doesn't love God, doesn't love His Word, and may be be attacking you? How are you doing? Are you loving that kind of a world? (laughs) As difficult as it is, Are you praying for God's grace to be exercised in your life? May God show His grace. We would be able to love a hostile world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this beautiful passage You've given to us. As hard as it is, impossible as it is in our own flesh to live it out, would You show Your grace through us and in us that we would be like Jesus, so we could even pray for people and bless those who persecute us. May we be able to rejoice with them and weep with them and do all these other principles that we've seen here and to, uh, no matter what happens in this world as we go through this earthly life, may we trust you and do good. And may we not do this, this good for our sake, but... May the world see our light shining, and may they glorify our Father. May they glorify you in heaven. May we do it for the right motive, for the right purposes. Would you conform us in the image of Christ, we pray. And uh, may we live out this love to a hostile world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.